Are you ready for the most ridiculous internet sports show you have ever seen? Welcome to React, home of the most outrageous and hilarious videos the web has to offer. So join me, Rocky Theus, and my co-host, Raiders Pro Bowl defensive end, Max Crosby, as we invite your favorite athletes, celebrities, influencers, entertainers in for an episode of games, laughs, and of course, the funniest reactions to the wildest web clips out there. Catch Reacts on YouTube, and that is Reacts, R-E-A-X-X. Don't miss it. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Regressing to the mean since 2015, it's the Hockey Pediocast. With your host, Dmitry Filipovich. Welcome to the Hockey PDO cast. My name is Dmitry Filipovich, and joining me is my buddy Jesse Granger. Jesse, what's going on, man? Not much. How's everything up in Vancouver? It's good. Yeah, we just had a, a conversation about the weather before we went on the air, about snow and how uh, our respective cities kind of shut down as soon as any of it uh, hits the ground. It's pretty crazy. People always rag on Vegas for not being your traditional hockey town and, and mostly because of the weather and stuff like that. And so I guess now that you guys finally have some snow in February, you, uh, you're qualified to be considered a hockey town. I think this city sold its soul to the devil in order to get hockey to Vegas, and now we are being punished with real hockey weather. Um, I've lived here 11 years, and it is never snow has never stuck to the ground. So last night that happened during the game, we got out of the arena, and I think I think parts of town got like six inches of snow. Um, but yeah, so that's I think I think that's the punishment. You get the hockey team, you get a Stanley Cup final, and uh, now you get the cold weather to go along with it. I think it's a fair trade. I think uh, based on how rabid some of the fans have been and, and the reception to the team, I think that's uh, a trade a lot of people, a lot of locals there would take. Um, so you and I are going to deep dive the Golden Knights today, and I'm really excited about it. We've been trying to get this done for weeks now, and finally we're getting around to it. And uh, I promise to be uh, as engaged as I possibly can be. I've got my tweet deck open in the background in case there's any breaking news or any breaking trades or recording this on a uh what is it it's a thursday afternoon late afternoon now so uh maybe if something does break and comes down the pike uh you and i will react to it live um never really done that on this podcast before but in the meantime we're going to talk about the team you cover for the athletic the golden knights and they're a really fascinating team you know i was watching the game last night pretty closely on nbc against the bruins because i knew we were going to be recording this and i've gotten a chance to watch them uh quite a bit here in the past couple weeks and it's weird because i think after the type of year they had in their debut season last year, um, anything that happened this year short of replicating that, I guess, would be viewed from uh, through a slightly different prism. So the fact that you know they're not hitting the heights they were last year, I think some people might consider this a disappointment. But at the same time, you sort of look at the underlying numbers and you watch them play. And despite the fact that they're not having the same type of success as they had last year, um, 
I'd actually argue this team is playing better hockey than they were last year in a weird way. I don't know, like, how, what's the what's the general vibe there locally around the team and sort of how uh, things are being received in year two? Yeah, it's it's a lot of that. I mean, the it, it seems like every after every loss, we talk to Coach Gerard Gallant, and it's he's it's constantly well, we played really well, we played good enough to win, but we didn't. And um, last year it was kind of the opposite. You hear the puck luck and and variance. And last year they were winning games they probably shouldn't have, and that's how they ended up with 109 points. This year it's kind of going the opposite way. They're controlling possession, they're controlling the Corsi. All the advanced analytics show that the Golden Knights should be winning these games, and they're creating more high danger chances. And for whatever reason, whether it's they're just not as skilled and they're not putting them in the net or if it's a little bit of puck luck or whatever you want to call it, they're, they're not getting the goals that they were last year. And that's, that's really been the biggest drop off defensively. They've still been good. It's, it's more, the goals aren't there. Yeah, I guess the, uh, the first line and sort of their, the way their season's gone is the perfect, uh, you know, living embodiment of the team as a whole, right? Like last year, uh, you put William Carlson and Riley Smith and Jonathan Marshall together and right out of the gate, uh, they stumble upon this amazing formula. You know, Will, Will Carlson scores 40 plus goals. He has this ridiculous career season. Uh, Marshall so and Riley Smith continue off some of the success they had in Florida together and that line dominated as a whole. And then now this year, um, you know, some of the underlying numbers are still there. They're still dominating possession. They're still, um, you know, doing a lot of the underlying things that you'd like to see from them. But the shooting percentage, especially in particular for those guys, has dried up quite a bit. And, you know, Marsh is so in particular uh, is fine. He's going to get his goals and he's going to get his point totals just because he's generating such an insane volume of shots. But you're seeing with William Carlson and with Riley Smith in particular that um, once they're not converting at these sky high rates all of a sudden we kind of talk about them differently and, and it, it's weird in 2019 you'd think that we'd still we'd come around to the fact that you know shooting percentage is very variant and from year to year you shouldn't get too high or too low on it but you still see it based on how sometimes guys talk about um you know riley smith is struggling he's not scoring goals and it's like well he's just maybe not being as lucky as he was last year yeah and and carlson obviously he had like 25 percent last yeah, year he yeah, shot 23.4 I mean, yeah yeah there's no way that's gonna happen and he's he's still pretty high this year at like 14 percent mm-hmm. um more just because he's very picky and choosy with his shots he, he shoots like half as many times as jonathan marcheseau does because marcheseau never met a shot he doesn't like i mean mm-hmm. we're talking he, he if he retrieves a puck at the blue line facing his own goal, he will just spin 180 and fire it at the net because he just that's just what he does. And I actually think um, he needs to tone it down a little bit, and I think he has. I think this year he's almost been forcing it, and he went through a stretch over the last, I, I think about five games ago he snapped out of it with a few goals, but he did go through a stretch this season where he could not score, and he began forcing things, and then he started trying to force passes that weren't there that ended up in the back of their own net on the other side. And, and I really do think that of all the three players, the struggles this year have really bothered Marcia. So more than the other two, even though he does have more points than them. Um, he he's his, his overall play has dipped more than Carlson and Smith. Whereas Carlson and Smith, I think are both playing really good hockey, especially defensively. They're both more 200 foot players than Marcia. So is, um, but yeah, Marcia. overall game, when you watch him play, he feels less impactful than he did last year. Yeah, I think people were, um, and I think Vegas sort of handled the William Carlson contract situation correctly this summer, where they basically 
you know, they paid him a handsome price this year, but they were like, let's see you do it for another year before we commit to this long term. And this year, I think he's on pace for something around 24, 25 goals, 50-ish points. He's shooting 14.2%, which, as you alluded to, is still above league average, but much more in line with what we'd expect from him. And I think if he's going to be that type of player to go along with uh, the stuff he does defensively and what he contributes playing down the middle, like that's a perfectly valuable player that's going to be paid nicely, but it's obviously not the 43-goal, 78-point guy that was shooting 25 percent as he was last year so i think it's kind of more in line with what he is as a true talent level i think the riley smith uh component of this equation is fascinating to me because i was looking at sort of his career arc and he's really been kind of this yo-yo up and down player where you know in his first year in boston he scores 20 goals he shoots 13.7 percent the next year he dips down to 13 goals and 9.1 percent he gets dealt for jimmy hayes then he goes to florida he has 25 goals he's back up to 14 percent then when he, his shooting percentage comes down, he gets salary dumped to Vegas. Last year, he has that nice little season where he scores 22 goals. And then this year, you look and he's shooting 7.6% again. And I, I don't think Vegas is going to be in any rush to part ways with him or, or, or move on. But I think if he has a bounce back, whether it's in the latter stages of this season or whether it's next year and he gets back to being at that 25-goal guy, I wouldn't be shocked at all. Yeah, he. And we were actually just talking about that this morning. That it seems like every other year he has a big year, and this year is one of his down years. Mm-hmm. Um, he, with him, with Riley, and like Riley Smith is Gerard Glant's favorite player on the team. He trusts him. He puts him out there in every situation, penalty kill. And Carlson and Smith, um, you you alluded to it. Carlson's his goals aren't there, but the rest of what he brings, those two are the most complete forwards on the team for the Golden Knights. I mean, they play, they're on the number one penalty killing unit. They're on the number one power play unit. Um, they create a ton of chances shorthanded, um, especially this year. They have, it seems like they create chances better shorthanded than they do at five on five almost. Um, but, but they, yeah, they, they've been fantastic. And, and those are the guys that, and like every team has players like this, even when the numbers aren't there, you still want them out there because they, they do so much for your team. Um, it'd be nice if Carlson scored 43 goals, but he's right. not on Jay Kopitar. So. Yeah, well, and, and you see last night against the Bruins, he, I believe there was one play where he either hit the crossbar of the post and then he had another breakaway that was stopped by a miraculous uh, Yaro Halak save. So it's like mm-hmm. it's not there for a lack of effort or, or the fact that they're completely ineffective. It's just... Um, you know, it's just obviously the pucks aren't going in the way they were last year, and that's sort of true for this entire team. Um, I'm, I'm fascinated how sort of this year they're having um, affects George McPhee's decision-making process in these next couple of days, and I know you talked to him about this and you wrote about it, and I recommend all the listeners after listening to this podcast go and read your work at The Athletic about it, but he's in an interesting spot here where they're basically essentially locked in to their current playoff position, right? They're, I think they're nine points back of San Jose for second in the Pacific, and they're 10 points up on the Coyotes uh, who are fighting for a wildcard spot. So it looks like they're going to be in that third Pacific division spot and they're going to play either either San Jose or, or Calgary. And so you kind of know where you stand and you know who you're going to play. Now, the unfortunate part of that is either of those two teams look like they're, you know, pretty lethal Goliaths who are going to be really tough to take down. So I'm not sure what the calculus is there if you're George McPhee from the perspective of especially how things went last year with their big acquisition being Thomas Attard and not working out and whether that affects the decision-making process at all. I don't know, like in, in your gauge of talking to him and also following the team closely, do you think weighing all of those things, how do you think that Vegas is going to approach this trade deadline from the perspective of potentially being a buyer or more so standing pat? Um, I think... 
George McPhee is going to be making phone calls on every single player that's available because it's just how he is. I mean, if you go back to his days in Washington, there's pretty much never been a season where he thought his team had a chance at winning the cup that he didn't buy at the deadline. Now, sometimes they were huge deals to bring in big name players. Sometimes they were just smaller moves for depth scoring or whatever, or to add a little defense, but or he added goalies a couple times, but he always adds. And last night I talked to him and he's maybe better than anyone I've ever spoken to at saying words without saying anything. <laughs> um, but, but I did get the sense of he believes this team is good. Um, he, they, they've been going through a rough stretch lately. And I, and I asked him, I'm like this rough stretch that you're going through, they're three and three, eight and one in their last 12 games, which is bad. Um, There's two ways to look at that. Is it, we're not playing well, so I need to add something so that we can start playing well again. Or is it, maybe we're not as close as I thought we were. Let's not waste future assets and go all in. And he basically said it has no effect on him. Um, He believes when this team plays the way that they can, they're they can beat anyone. Um, and I mean, they've shown that this year and they showed it last year that when they're playing well, they can beat someone. So I, I think that he really does believe this team has a chance in the playoffs and therefore he is going to make a move or at least try. I think last year he wanted Eric Carlson badly. Yeah. I think he tried really, really hard to get that deal done. Didn't want to give up Cody glass, ended up not getting it. And then I think he panicked. Um, I think it was the last few minutes of before the deadline, and he fell back to his secondary option, which was Tatar, which is not what he originally wanted. And then it ended up backfiring. He didn't fit. Tatar's a great player. You see him go to Montreal. He's still he's still the same player he was in Detroit. He just didn't fit in Vegas for whatever reason. But yeah, so I think the lesson learned from that is only do the move that you want, and if you don't get it, just stand pat. Um, but I do expect him to be active over the next few days. Yeah, I definitely agree with that rationale. Sometimes we see teams kind of, uh, you know, make moves just for the sake of making moves or just so you have something to point to your fan base and go like, look, we're trying, we're a, we're a buyer, yeah. we're a contender. And, and that's not necessarily the right way to do business. But I think it's pretty clear, as you mentioned, I think they can definitely compete with those teams. And I'd say unless San Jose or, or Calgary go out and get a goal in these next couple of days, they'll at least be able to skate with these teams and potentially also have a goalie advantage in that. So that's, yeah, that's that, kind of the yeah, ultimate equalizer, right? Yeah. The, I, I, to me, if I'm San Jose or Calgary, I don't know how comfortable I feel going into a playoff series with the Golden Knights, um, considering Flurry's playoff pedigree. And he was unbelievable last year in the playoffs. And he started this season really good. He's been a little, he's been dipping a little bit this, the last few stretch just with the rest of the team. But I mean, Calgary's goalie situation, you don't know if Riddich is, is really what he is. He can, I mean, at any point, he could fall off, and I don't think it would surprise anyone. And obviously, San Jose is looking to maybe acquire a goalie. They're not super satisfied with what they have. Martin Jones has great games, and he has bad games. So if, if I'm one of those two teams, I don't know how thrilled I am to play Vegas, even if you do have a better overall lineup, just because goalies in the playoffs, we all know, are so important. And um, there, there aren't many teams that go into a series feeling confident their goalie is going to outplay Marc-Andre Fleury. Yeah. I mean, obviously this Sharks team is, uh, is, be- is better and, and different than the one that Vegas played last year in the postseason. But I did, I just, I really love watching that series and the, the pace and the tempo that both teams were playing at was remarkable. And I think it'll be more of the same. So if we get treated to that as a first round matchup, I would be all for that. And I, 
you, I completely agree with your with what you said about how I don't if I was Calgary or San Jose I would not feel comfortable with that being as a first round series. But I guess that sort of incentivizes doing better in the regular season and sort of like Vegas got treated to that cake first round matchup against Los Angeles last year when they ran away with the Pacific. Um, the team that wins the Pacific this year will be rewarded with a much easier first round series against whoever comes out of that jumble of wildcard teams that are crawling into the mix. Yep. Yeah, no, it, it, it does make a big difference. Um, last year, Vegas was got, had a really easy run and then they let Nashville and Winnipeg beat up on each other. And, and, and it looks like that's probably going to happen again this year. Um, it's, it's going to be fun. I, I would love a San Jose series other than the fact that San Jose, have you covered games in San Jose? I've never been to a game there. No. Oh my goodness. It's the worst setup for like the press in the history of sports it's bad they forgot to build a press box in san jose so you're not in a press box you're actually in the rafters just like on scaffolding where they have like tables and chairs set up it's pretty bad but other than that the actual play on the ice should be fantastic yeah they have these weird vantage points for the cameras i feel like too for the tv setup and the lighting's always off and i'm not sure how much of it is intentional and how much it is you know out of necessity but yeah you're right it, it does feel like there's some weird going on there but i would love to watch that series these are all uh nitpicks of ours as media members yes. um <laughs> just take a quick break here i'm gonna hear from a sponsor and then we're gonna pick up this conversation on the other end of things sponsoring today's episode of the hockey pdo cast is SeatGeek. SeatGeek knows that getting tickets online can be far too complicated. With hundreds of websites and varying levels of reliability, it's hard to know who to trust out there. That's why SeatGeek's the way to go, because they're going to do all the work for you. They're going to pull millions of tickets into one place, so you can easily find the seats you want for a price you're willing to pay. Even if you go into the experience not necessarily knowing where you want to sit or what you'd like to get from your seat... Uh, you can let SeatGeek do that work for you because they're going to grade all the tickets based on value. And then you just look at their easy-to-use color-coded map and you go for the green tickets, which denote the best value, and you just go from there. And listen, there's nothing quite like being there in person, and SeatGeek's going to get you closer to that action. Uh, plus, every purchase with them is fully guaranteed. So you can shop for tickets on SeatGeek with full confidence, knowing that what you pay for is what you're going to get. All of that is why you need to make SeatGeek your go-to ticket source from everything from sports and concerts to comedy and theater. I've got the SeatGeek app on my phone, and I've found that in just a couple clicks and less than a couple minutes, really, um, you can just go search for the event you want, and you're in and out, and you've got the seats you want, whether it's for a basketball game or a hockey game or a concert or what have you. And now that we are approaching the trade deadline period, um, I imagine that it'll only add to experience getting to potentially go watch your team utilize a whole new set of players that they might potentially have and uh, a new look roster and as we approach the stretch run here the games are going to pick up an in intensity and i'm sure the atmosphere in the buildings is going to reflect that and as we approach the postseason um, every game is going to matter that much more so you're going to want to actually experience that live and get up close and personal and see geeks the way to go for that and best of all as my listener you're going to get ten dollars off your first SeatGeek purchase today all you have to do to claim that is download the SeatGeek app and enter the promo code pdo that's promo code PDO for $10 off your first SeatGeek purchase. Now let's get back to the show. Um, so we're talking about George McPhee's uh, you know, decision-making and sort of how he's going to approach this trade deadline. And I think you know, you're always balancing out uh, building this farm system versus competing in the present day and, and, and trying to go for a Stanley Cup. And last year they went for it and they gave up three picks and it didn't wind up working out for them. And I think they're in a unique spot here where on the one hand, they've only been in the league for 
two drafts now, so you'd think they wouldn't be that loaded. But first off, I think they completely nailed their first uh, inaugural draft with the 12 picks they had. And they're set up pretty well here in the future. I think they have nine picks in the first five rounds this year, and then they have their first and three second round picks in 2020. So if they are going to get feisty here, I think they have plenty of draft capital to do so. Uh, But it's pretty clear, it seems like, guys like Cody Glass and Eric Brandstrom are no-goes and I imagine if there was any sort of a blockbuster trade or you're bringing in a player that was really going to move the needle in either direction uh, those guys would kind of have to be involved yeah and and you mentioned only two drafts so their their prospect pool is a lot more shallow than most teams but when George McPhee went into that expansion draft if you go back and look I mean he made so many side deals I think like one out of every four teams sent a pick his way. Um, like Columbus, he got William Carlson and a first round pick. They paid him a first round pick to take William Carlson. And um, a lot of the, I think he ended up with three extra first round picks out of that. So he was able to kind of accelerate that process. And you mentioned Cody Glass, the, where, where they're really thin is forward. And they didn't want to give up Cody Glass in that trade to Ottawa last offseason and last trade deadline because Cody Glass is really their only prospect at as far as forwards go that's even close to making the nhl right Right. now the rest are are really far out whereas defense they are stacked like i i think there's they can rival any team in the league as far as their defensive prospect pool from eric brandstrom to nick haig to uh white cloud to bischoff to uh dugan they've they've got so many defensemen in chicago um their ahl team they're playing basically all 20 year olds um and they're, they're one of the better teams in the AHL. So I think if you're going to dip into that pool of prospects for a trade, it's got to be on the defensive side. So my editors at ESPN, uh, that was a nice little humble brag by me, want me to do <laughs> um, sort of like a little preview thing where I look at all the contenders and identify their biggest need and sort of look for a logical trade partner that could fit that. Um, it could plausibly happen. And with Vegas, I, I was kind of struggling because I think it's pretty clear. I do like their defense, and I don't think they're going to do anything drastic there. I think it comes on the forward group. And I was trying to, you know, what do you think? Do you, do you think a bigger need would be going after a center, acknowledging that there's so few of them are available? I think it basically comes down to Matthew Shane and, and Kevin Hayes and then maybe a guy like Eric Stahl. Or do you think it would be make more sense to get another potential winger and then split things up and, and roll with three score lines and keep that fourth line intact? Yeah, I think winger is a lot more likely. Um, I wouldn't be shocked if they went with center, but the Golden Knights are pretty solid at center. I mean, Paul Stasny uh, missed a huge part of the season when he got injured early, but since he's come back, he's you could argue he's been the best forward on the team. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's been phenomenal. And William Carlson still, his, you got that 200-foot game. He's, you're still happy with him up there. The third-line center, Cody Eakin, is having one of his best scoring years of the season. And Pierre-Edouard Belmar, the fourth-line center, has pretty much done exactly what you want out of a fourth line center and he kills a ton of penalties um it's the wingers where they're having their issues and i i mean mark stone you're gonna have to give up a lot to yeah. bring him in but he fits gerard gallant's uh his the way he wants his players to play with tight four checking really high energy 200 foot game he did, like whereas too much tatar was clearly not like that's he's the style of play is almost opposite of what gallant wants mark stone would be a perfect fit you're obviously gonna have to give up a lot to bring him in. I think uh, a cheaper version would be like Wayne Simmons is probably not going to cost as much as a Mark Stone. I think he would also be a good net front presence that kind of fits what Gerard Gallant wants out of his wingers. Um, 
As for what you're going to give up to do that, <laughs> my, my proposition when I did my trade deadline primer, I don't know, a week and a half, two weeks ago, was basically give them an NHL-ready defenseman, which would probably be Colin Miller or Shea Theodore, both of whom are young, offensively-minded defensemen who are locked up long-term under pretty good contracts. Um, I think it'd probably take one of those two one of the prospects in the AHL, um, whether it's Nick Haig, who's been who won Canadian Defenseman of the Year in junior last year and now is playing phenomenal in the AHL. He's twenty and he's six foot seven, um, has a lot of potential. Or maybe a White Cloud, who's a little closer to he's he's a little older. I think he's twenty two and and he's he's another good defensive prospect. And then probably a pick, right. Yeah, I'd be pretty reluctant to move on from uh, from Shea Theodore unless it was a Mark Stone type, and you even had an inkling mm-hmm. that he was going to want to resign, right? Like, I, I think for for any 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 winger below that caliber, I, I'd be pretty hesitant to move a guy who's under contract and whose apex is still yet to come, and who's already such a valuable contributor um, for a rental like that. Just because I'm not sure how that fits into this turn, this team's plans in terms of actually moving the needle for them. But I think you know you mentioned Paul Stasny there, and and. I think it's fair to say that their best forward trio this season has been the combination of him, Pacioretty, and Alex Tuck, right? Oh, for sure. They, they especially offensively, yeah. um, they're they're not nearly as good defensively as the top line is, um, and they and they get a break because of that. The top line takes the they basically match up with the opposing top line almost every night. Um, and that allows that second line of Stasny, Tuck, and Pacioretty to just go all out offensively, and they have been really, really good um, together. Pacioretty does what he does. He doesn't do a whole lot of forechecking. He, he's mostly just find soft spots in the offensive zone and get the puck to him. Um, Stasny, obviously, is the calming presence. He slows the game down. And Alex Tuck, who was good as a rookie last year and showed flashes, he just it seemed like the game was a little fast for him. He would deke through the entire defense and then would become going so fast at the goalie he would just fire it wide or not know what to do with the puck this year the game is slowing down a little bit he's starting to his brain's starting to process things as fast as his skates move and he's a huge guy he skates way too fast for how big he is it doesn't even seem possible um i think he catches defensemen off guard because they see him coming and they he's the same size as them or bigger and they don't realize that he just blows right by him so his i think the biggest part of that line has been the progression of alex tuck he's been the most consistent player on the team all year um even when stasny was out with his injury when cody eakin moved up that was when cody eakin got the bulk of his goals this season was when he was playing with alex tuck and the majority of them were one-timers off of plays that were basically all alex tuck and then he just dishes it to cody eakin for a wide open net um he's he's been phenomenal as a second year player yeah, no, yes. I was going to say that I, I would think that Stasi, just based on his player type and sort of what he brings to the table and his unselfishness, would be the most valuable member of that group. But then I remember that Alex Tuck did most of his work this season, actually, in the early going when Paul Stasny was out, and he was kind of this like singular force that was sort of driving that online himself. So I think all three of those guys fit together perfectly. I love the combination of having Stasny with a shooter like Pacioretty and a net driver like Tuck. And you constantly read, um, you know, evaluators, especially prospect evaluators like a Corey Prodman and they talk about a player's hockey sense and I, n- I never kind of am able to sort of quantify or wrap my head around what that means but then you watch a guy like Paul Stasi and he's not the fastest player by any means he's not the most skilled guy out there but for whatever reason it seems like the puck just kind of follows him around and he's always on it and I imagine that's what evaluators are talking about hockey sense when you watch a guy like Paul Stasny just constantly doing things even though he might not have the physical attributes to, to be the best guy in the game. 
Yeah, I, I've gotten to watch him a lot at practice this year, and it's it's amazing. And then you see it in the game, and, and like when you watch a guy in practice and you notice things, then you notice him in a game that you wouldn't have noticed if you hadn't like the, the, if you weren't already looking for him. And just he just everything he looks so slow for him. He, his head's not jerking back and forth real quick. He he's so comfortable and knows where everyone is on the ice that when he gets the puck, he's he's confident. He's not worried about a guy coming behind him because he already knows that there's no one there. He's he just has such a good sense for everyone where they are and where they're going and it just he just makes it look really easy. And like I talked to Nate Schmidt a couple weeks ago and he was telling me um he's seen it Stasny playing on other teams throughout the league through for his whole career. He, he knows him pretty well, but he didn't realize how good he was until he got out on the ice and practiced with him every day. And it, and he's amazed by it. Yeah. I mean, he's so unselfish. I, I miss, maybe you could even argue sometimes to a fault, but I, yes. I, I, I imagine he's just so fun to play with, right? Like you watch um, sort of what he meant to Patrick Laine and, and Nikolai Ehlers last year and how they made that run. And when he was their second line center and now how Laine in particular has had a miserable go of it without him. And, you know, when you have a guy like that, who's just constantly out there looking to get the puck to you and in the spots you want to shoot it from, like I imagine that's probably the most fun player type you could play with. Yeah, he he. I made a joke last night. I tweeted like, you you can tell when Paul Stasny is going to pass when he has it's when he has the puck. <laughs> he I think he passed on a shootout or on a breakaway earlier this season. Actually, he he had a breakaway with a guy chasing, and he deked and then left the puck for the trailer um, <laughs> on a breakaway. So that that pretty much paints the picture of how unselfish he is um and it's it's partially because he doesn't have a great shot and he's very self-aware like he knows um he doesn't have great moves he's his hands aren't the best he's not gonna beat a goalie with a big shot so let me do what i can do and hopefully set someone else up for something well the joke in vancouver during uh, henrik sedin's heyday was even when he'd score goals it would be passing it to the back of the net and it feels yeah. like there's a little bit of that going on with Taz as well yes definitely um you know what the other thing that stuck out to me watching that game and watching the gold knights lately is i think and this is a weird thing to say about a defenseman and especially one who doesn't put up huge point totals like when you make sense that a guy like Eric carlson would be on the list of most fun players to watch but i think if i had to pick like five or ten players that i could only exclusively watch Nate Schmidt would have to be on that list his skating is phenomenal it's insane um, he, yeah. he makes it look very easy um he he leads the, the team in ice time and Gallant basically told us like he tries to keep line restriction or uh, shift restrictions on everybody he wants everybody to take short shifts except for Nate Schmidt he has full reign to stay out there as long as he wants because he can skate for days he never gets tired because his skating is so efficient and because of that he's able to kind of jump into the play and you saw it last night he jumped into the play quite a few times including the goal that he scored right after the goal that they gave up and he does that while not sacrificing um, defensive responsibility because he's the shutdown defenseman on this team a guy like eric carlson or brent burns or whoever you want to pick they don't have as much defensive responsibility because their team is counting on them to go score goals and put up points and if you're not as if you're not back as much as you should be it's not that big a deal because that's not what we're relying on you for whereas nate schmidt he plays that top pairing defenseman and his job every night is to shut down the opposing top line Um, and that's part of why he probably doesn't have as many points as um, you'd think by watching him play but yeah his his skating ability is phenomenal and on the rare occasion he does jump into the play um it's fun to watch well in a league now where pretty much everyone is a good skater like 
the fact that he sticks out as much as he does for his skating is a testament yeah. to him, right? Like maybe back in the day in the nineties, if a guy was a good skater and he'd pop off the page, you'd be like, okay, well it makes sense. No one else around him can skate. So it's pretty <laughs> obvious with him. It's like everyone around him is a good, great skater in their own right. And he's just leaps and bounds better than all of them. And just watching him cover ground and sort of, I wonder, I mean, he's already well enough into his career now that I don't think he's necessarily going to change much as a player, but yeah, I feel like sometimes he could probably even get away with being more active offensively or taking more risks just because he can cover ground so much more easier that it, sometimes I would love to see him uh, unleashed a little bit more freed up because you see that like that goal he scored against Boston where he just has this end-to-end -end rush and, and shows off the physical skills to pull off a goal like that. Like I feel like that's something we should see more often from him just based on what he's capable of. Yeah, in the last three games, he's actually done it more since Gerard Gallant switched up the defensive pairings. Um, he's been paired with Braden McNabb on that top pairing basically since the Golden Knights started as a team, dating all the way back to the beginning of last season, until three games ago. And he put Derek England up on that top pairing, um, which I did not agree with at the time because Derek England has not been great and he's getting older and slower. But I think putting him with England with McNab McNabb is a more stay at home defenseman also, but he does jump in occasionally, whereas Derek England never jumps into the rush. So I think it's kind of given Schmidt more of a green light. He knows he always has Derek England back there. And, and usually he's on the, ice with the top forward unit of Carlson and Smith and he knows those guys are going to reload really well behind him so he's not afraid to jump up so since since Gallant made that switch three games ago um Schmidt has been significantly more noticeable offensively yeah I mean the success that he's had so far in his career speaks to sort of all those little things he does I know you know on high school metrics can be sometimes uh filled with noise and might not necessarily capture a player's ability and sort of might speak more to his uh situation or what minutes he plays but pretty much since he came into the league as a regular in 2015-16 whatever he's been on the ice his team seemed to uh outscore opposition by a, by a massive margin I imagine he plays a big role in that and I think he's as a defenseman and we sort of I know everyone has their own personal preferences and maybe it's a subjective thing in terms of what you want whether you want a more stay-at-home defensively responsible conservative type or if you want a more free-flowing smooth skating defenseman but he's the perfect defenseman for me in the sense that he doesn't take a lot of penalties and he doesn't necessarily you know force the puck by just shooting it from the point just to get it on net and he's sort of he's very methodical and calculated and, and when he takes his chances they seem to be pretty good ones so I don't know if I was like creating a defenseman in the lab I think it would, I would just want six and eight mids. And we talk about his skating offensively. To me, it's it's so much fun to watch him defensively because, I mean, we you, we all know the guy's trying to go around you. You try to stay skating backwards, but once he closes that gap, at some point you have to turn around and skate forwards. Or you're going to get beat. And Schmidt skates so well that that pretty much never happens to him. Like I could probably count on one hand the amount of times that's happened to him in two seasons in Vegas. He because his skating is so well, he keeps his gaps and maintains his spacing better than anyone on the team, and that's part of the reason he has so few penalties because he never gets caught out of position and doesn't have to hold or trip or hook. Right, that's the thing. I remember. I think there's still probably some old school people that believe that a low penalty minute total means you're playing soft or you're not, you know, being physical, but. It with him it's like he's just never out of position because he can cover ground so so easily so he's not hooking he's not holding he's not taking guys down just to prevent them from from scoring on them so yeah i mean he's the prototypical defenseman and he's had a very interesting career path because obviously he played a while in college and then when he came up with washington he wasn't necessarily a heralded prospect and he was playing on sheltered third pairing minutes but it's clear with guys like him and colin miller and shea theodore that 
Vegas preferred a certain type of defenseman and valued their skating and sort of identified them as guys who could do more given more opportunity on an expansion team and clearly they've been rewarded for it. Yeah, and me personally, Eric Brandstrom skates better than all of them. He yeah. may be the best skater on the team the day he joins the team. Um, so I'm super excited for that. And 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 Nick Hague, he's like I said, he's six seven, so he's a little clunkier out there. But he's no Braden McNabb, who's who's like kind of a stiffer player who can't really skate as much. For being six seven, he skates tremendously well. So um, the future is probably going to be more of the same, if not even more offensive and skater driven defenseman. Yeah, I honestly thought that he could make the team out of camp. And I think for a while there before Shea Theodore was signed to his deal in the game, it looked like he might actually, it was Shane Nate Schmidt, obviously suspended as well to start the season. I thought we might get a, at least a sneak peek or a cup of coffee with Eric Brandstrom. And I was excited about it, but uh, we'll have to wait a little while longer. Yeah, we were even surprised in town. We thought for sure he was going to get, during that 20-game suspension for Nate Schmidt, we thought he'd get four or five games just to see. Um, I think George McPhee is afraid that because so, Brandstrom, obviously, he's a, he's a really flashy guy. He does a lot of flashy moves. Um, he's the, your prototypical Swedish defenseman that's super offensive-minded. Um, he does crazy things, and I think McPhee is worried that, that he can build bad habits very quickly in the NHL, and I, and I, he really, really wants to take it slow with him. And, and they put him in the AHL, and now he's dominating down there. Um, and I he, he played really really well for sweden and world junior so i think he's going to be ready for that step but i I, more than any other prospect i think mcphee is is afraid to to ruin him for lack of a better term by letting him out there and and letting him get himself into trouble yeah um okay how worried should we be about mark andre Fleury's usage this season very worried um i've been i've been the driver of that train i think i wrote a story in december like december 15th way back when the season first started um saying that they're playing him too much um especially at his age if you look i i am a goalie nerd i play goalie four or five nights a week and i that's my main focus every game is the goalies and um you look at the goalies that have won the Stanley Cup over the last half decade, and they're all, whether it was an injury, whether it was last year Holtby was almost getting his job taken by Grubauer, whatever the reason is, the last bunch of goalies that have won the Stanley Cup have done so with a fresh body because they didn't play as many games in the regular season. And in Pittsburgh, you saw it with Flurry and Murray going back and forth, and they were both fresh, and they played amazing in the playoffs. And I just... I think if the Golden Knights are going to win the Stanley Cup, it's going to be because of Marc-Andre Fleury. I just don't see him winning it just like in spite of him. He, he's going to be the reason they win. In order for that to happen, he's got to be on his A game, and I just don't think he can be after playing 69, 70 games in the regular season. Yeah, he's on pace for just under 70 now, and I he hasn't hit 60 since 2014-15, and obviously part of that was uh, because he got usurped there by, by Matt Murray. But I think, yeah, expecting a guy who... He's 34 years old with, what, approaching 800 games of NHL experience to play this much is alarming. And I think even more so, um, like they've invested in him long term, right? I guess medium term with that three year, $21 million mm-hmm. extension that hasn't kicked in yet. So wearing him out is obviously an alarm at the same time. Like this was a, a kind of out of necessity. Like I feel like based on how they started off the season, they really needed that dependable presence of his and Ned. And I, I don't know. I'd, I'd like to see them, especially now that they are kind of locked in in this third spot in the Pacific Division and can't really move up or down much. I'd love to see um, them spell him a bit more with Malcolm Subban. And we saw that with back-to-back games last week. And I imagine we're going to see more of that in the final twenty or so games. 
Yeah, definitely. Like you said, the 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 fact that they're locked in. I mean, there's nothing to lose. Like he, at this point, for the Golden Knights, they're not going to come out and say it because you know they're going to say, "Oh, we want to win every, we want every point." Blah blah blah. But I mean, the real goal is be the best we can be. April 7th when the season ends so that we can win in the playoffs. And part of that should be playing Malcolm Subban a healthy amount. I said 50, 50. I, I think they should play him 10 of the last 22 games. Um, if I was them and then let flurry play two or three down this at the end of the season to get back into a rhythm, start trying to trying to simulate playoff games and, and be ready for that. But I think Subban has been phenomenal. I think part of the reason flurry got up there so high in those game totals was at one point they didn't play Subban for about a month. And that was after a seven, two beat down up in Calgary in which I now I'll admit I'm biased towards the goalies. It's never their fault, <laughs> but, but I didn't think of, of the seven goals. I think maybe one was Subban's fault. They were one timers from the back door that he had no chance on. And I think they've kind of lost confidence in him. And now that's, they're starting to gain that back. I think Subban has been phenomenal. His safe percentage is higher than Marc-Andre Fleury's, obviously a lot smaller sample size. But in his last few games, his, the team's not given him much goal support. I think he has, yeah, so he's 3-6 and six this year. In his six losses, the team has scored, the Golden Knights have scored a total of six goals. Um, that's, it's tough to win when your team's yes. averaging one goal a game. And, and the last two losses, his team's been shut out in. So the team doesn't play as well in front of him for whatever reason. If they can start giving him some more goal support, it's, it's, I don't think it's that much of a drop off in a regular season game to go from Flurry to Subban. I think he's a, he's in the top half of the NHL when it comes to backup goalies, in my opinion. Yeah. I mean, he's obviously got the pedigree heading in and I think in his limited time in Vegas, he's certainly shown or I guess flashed the talent. And I think it also behooved them. I mean, I know they're kind of committed now to Flurry as their starter for the next couple of seasons, at least, but it would behoove them to get a longer look and see what Subban can actually be and whether moving into next year or the year after where that there can be more of a 50, 50 split, because especially with Fleury's age, but also with where the league's headed, we're seeing time and time again, that these teams that are successful and have long playoff runs typically aren't relying upon their goalies to play 65, 70 games in the regular season anymore. Like they were back during uh, Mika Kiprasov and Marty Broder's heydays. Exactly. And, and everyone wonders why Carey Price and Bobrovsky are so bad in the playoffs. It's because they're exhausted from carrying their team for 70 games throughout the season. Um, and yeah, and like you said, you mentioned, that's a good point. Subban is an RFA at the end of this year. Right. You, can ten, you can tender him, but I mean, eventually you're going to have to make a decision of whether you want to keep him long term. And he's going to have to make a decision of whether he wants to stay here long term. And, and obviously, the more you play him, the better both sides can make that decision. Are there any other storylines of this team? Like, I, I feel like we've kind of rattled through some of the the main stuff that I had here on my on my uh, on my checklist. Um, I don't know. You cover the team more closely. You're more aware of what's going on there. Like, is there any other sort of uh, pressing topics or things that people are talking about locally that we should get into? Yeah, I mean, the biggest issue with this team has been the third line and mm -hmm. their lack of scoring. And we we've talked about Cody Eakin and how well he's played. Fifteen goals, seventeen assists. That's pretty high for his n normal totals about this time of the year. But almost all of that came when he was filling in on the second line and he hasn't done much since he went back down to the third line. And it's not, I'm not going to pin it on Cody Eakin. He still plays good defensive hockey, but the problem is he's not a guy that can elevate lesser wingers and make the, like a Paul Stasny can. Um, he needs some talent around him in order to do stuff. And the wingers on the third line have been 
not good. Um, Ryan Carpenter is someone they picked up off waivers last year from San Jose. He's got four goals and nine assists. He's a minus eight on the season. And then the other winger on that side has been a rotation of Tomas Nosek, who's been a really big disappointment, and he's a minus 14 on the season. Um, Brandon Peary was phenomenal on the second line when he came up, and obviously that was a national story because he was scoring every game. Right. Then as soon as as soon as Pacioretty comes back and Peary goes down to the third line, he's completely invisible. Um, so so anyway, so the, the, the biggest issue on the Golden Knights is getting that third line to do something, anything, just anything at all. That way on nights when that top line isn't producing on the on the rare occasion that the patch already tucks Dazney line doesn't do something you have someone else to pick you up and they just haven't so far so well, I don't know what the answer is but well I imagine part of the I mean they're still hoping that Eric Carlo is going to come back and give them something right yeah that would be phenomenal I mean that would that would completely change the outlook of that line because Brandon Peary is a guy that Obviously, if he's on the ice with talented players, he's going to get in good positions and he's got a great shot. He can score. If all of a sudden that line is Eakin Hall-Apiri, it completely changes the way you view that line. I don't know if Eric Hall is coming back. Um, mm. I just asked George McPhee last night. He wouldn't tell me much. Um, I know he had major surgery on his knee. Um, the scar is very a huge scar down his knee. So, And he's he's walking around. He was in a full leg brace for a while on crutches. Just recently, he's, he's gotten off that. And he's walking around kind of with a limp. I don't – I mean, the playoffs are coming up so quick. I, it would be – if I had to bet right now, I'd say he probably isn't ready. So the next option would be bringing someone in. And if you bring a Mark Stone or a Wayne Simmons, then he's probably going to fit into the top six. And that allows you to move maybe a Riley Smith or a Marsh or so or somebody down into that third line to help Eakin and Peary. Yeah, I mean, especially since Hala's main attribute or his calling card is his speed, right? And his skating, and obviously that lower body injury would zap him of that quite a bit, I imagine. And it's tough because I don't think anyone was necessarily expecting that he replicate his 30-goal pace or whatever he did last year, but essentially getting a zero from him this year because of the injury and the slow start is... Uh, is It hurts them quite a bit. It hurts that depth scoring that was such a pivotal... Uh, ingredient to their success last year I, I we haven't really talked about him much in the terms of the names that you've been throwing out there but like a guy like chris Kreider, for example um is a name i keep coming back to for them because he's got another year in his deal so he's not necessarily a pure rental and maybe you give uh-huh. up a bit more for him but also just like i think what made this vegas team special last year was that relentless tenacious for checking and speed and how you could never take a break for any any sequence of shifts because whoever was coming across the boards would be giving you fits and causing you to make mistakes and i'm not sure how much a guy like wayne simmons necessarily contributes to that whereas maybe a guy like chris Kreider can bring that speed element as well and and make it just incredibly difficult for you to play against and then all of a sudden a playoff series against calgary or san jose you could spread out spread out those lines and move a riley smith down to the third line and all of a sudden you're rolling those three scoring lines without a worry really yeah no you just hit the nail on the head that was gallant played his lines a lot more evenly than most coaches um he he liked to pretend like it was four even lines but that's obviously not the case but but more evenly than most coaches do and it was because he had lines that he could do that with and this year he hasn't that third line has been at this right now the way it's currently constructed with no sick peary eakin carpenter whoever Daniel Carr came up from the AHL for a little bit. Oscar Lindbergh has been up there, whoever it is. It's basically just go out there and 
if you can make it a stalemate, that's a win. Just don't, just don't get scored on. Um, and obviously that's not ideal, especially if you want to run all four lines. The fourth line hasn't produced a ton with Ryan Reeves, William Carrier, and Pierre Barbellar. They haven't produced a ton of points, but they're constantly in the offensive zone and they're just beating the hell out of the other team with, with four checking there Reeves and Carrier are one and two in the league and hits. At least they were before Carrier's injury. He might've, he might've dropped down now, but they're, they're just pummeling guys. So, so they're doing their job, even though they're not scoring. Yeah, no, they are. And, and I'm, I'm, just kind of pivoting forward and sort of taking a bigger picture view of things. We've talked about potential transactions they can make here at the deadline and improving the team. But even beyond this trade deadline, like I know it makes sense for us to discuss it because they are at least in the discussion, if not a pure contender. So they should be looking to get better now. But I'm very fascinated to see how they approach this summer because they've pretty much got all their foundational cornerstones locked up on very reasonable contracts for the next couple of years. I guess William Carlson's the only exception there, but they've also got some just because they have taken care of that business, they've got some extra space now to operate with. And if they, with the cap rising, I'm, I'm going to be very curious to see. I mean, I think coming into it, we wondered, you know, how willing players would be to come here, whether they'd want to sign long-term deals. And then all of a sudden with the tax considerations, we see a guy like Paul Stasny maybe take less than he would have otherwise to come play for the Golden Knights. And I'll be fascinated to see if that trend carries uh, into the future and whether they can land another big free agent or two this summer to potentially address some of these depth concerns that we've alluded to earlier. Yeah, I in my trade deadline primer, I did a ton of math and figured out that they're going to have about eighteen point three million in cap space, um, with Carlson really being the only big one that they've got to resign. Um, the other two unrestricted free agents are not major pieces. We're talking Pierre Edward Belmar, Oscar Lindbergh, Ryan Carpenter type of guys that that aren't gonna. If if you do want to keep them, it's only a million or two here. It's not going to be much. Um, and, and you mentioned the tax break in Vegas. Obviously, that's phenomenal, especially if you're trying to get a guy that's coming from California or Canada where the taxes are really high compared to here. Um, you can give him 20% less money, and he still ends up making more in the end. The other thing that Vegas has going for it is it's I mean, it's a great setup here for these players like these guys are spoiled rotten. I, I talk to them all the time. I was talking to Nate Schmidt for a story I'm writing um, a couple days ago about how they all get their cars washed um, <laughs> every day at practice. Bill Foley, uh, one guy one day was like, oh, man, I got to get out of practice. Uh, I got to get out of the lunch early because I got to go wash my car and Foley's like oh okay the next day he has a car wash service that's there they just leave their keys and they wash and detail the insides of all of their cars like twice a week or whatever but anyways these guys have a brand new practice facility that's obviously state-of-the-art any practice facility that gets built is the new best one in the North America and this is that's what this is for them they all live in this uh, really nice area of Vegas called Summerlin. That's they're all basically within walking distance of the practice facility. Um, there's no traffic here because it's it's only two million people. There there is hardly any traffic. They're they've got a brand new arena, a brand new practice facility. They make more money than they ever have because of the taxes. Um, it's obviously the weather is great other than today when it snowed, but usually it's awesome weather. It's there's basically nothing to complain about with this city and it's going to make it super attractive. Assuming you keep the, now if if all of a sudden the franchise is acting like Ottawa and it's in disarray and there's all that, then, then all, all of a sudden maybe it's not as attractive as long as it's a functioning franchise that appears to treat the players. Well, they're going to get pretty much whoever they want. I mean, obviously it helps that, 
I mean, there's kind of that honeymoon period, but also the fact that the team has been as good as it's been and the fact that they've uh, assembled this team that's really fun to watch and plays a, a fun exciting up-tempo brand of hockey certainly helps but I was kind of curious I wanted to see this year because now that a bit of that sort of new shine r- rubs off and after the first year and you see whether it's going to be consolidated or how it's going to shape up in year two and there hasn't been any drop-off in my opinion and you look at and there I think that attendance number is their top 10 right there with all the Canadian markets and all the capitals and penguins so I mean the support is clearly there and I've really enjoyed watching the games just from the sort of atmosphere you see from it i'm sure you feel that covering it as well so yeah i imagine um in terms of the market itself it must be a very appealing one for a lot of guys to come and play in yeah that's another thing that i didn't even mention is the fan support has been phenomenal i mean they've they've never had anything but uh over capacity sell out at t-mobile arena and between the standing room only sections and the nightclub that they have that hangs out over the they've got Hyde nightclub out there that kind of it's like a triangle shaped balcony that hangs out over the rink Um, between those spots I think they're at like 105 percent capacity pretty much every game Um, the practices are open to the public at their facility where they've got stands that hold about 800 the the stands hold about 800 people there's usually about a thousand people there um, every single day for practice whether it's a weekday a weekend even morning skates that are only about 30 minutes long they still get five six seven hundred people out there watching them um it's been pretty wild i have yet to talk to a player on any team that says t-mobile arena is not the best atmosphere they've played in in the nhl so like you said we'll see if in 10 years it's still that way but for now and for the foreseeable future um Vegas is an awesome place to play hockey because of that atmosphere. Um, and they've got, I think, so the place, the building holds 18,000. 14,000 are season ticket holders, and they've got a 6,000-person waiting list for season tickets. So let's just say the team has a couple bad seasons and some season ticket holders drop off. They've got people waiting to fill those spots. Yeah, no, absolutely. I was going to say when you were mentioning the uh – the sellouts, like I remember here in Vancouver for a while, they'd announced that the Canucks had this sellout streak and then you'd actually watch the games or go to them and there'd be so many empty seats and it was clear that, <laughs> yeah. you know, they were, they were fudging the numbers a little bit and there was some of those like corporate seats that were being bought out but not actually filled and I feel like everyone that's in attendance at those games is doing their part to add to the atmosphere and get involved and engaged and it's been really fun to watch and, and I guess the big loser here is probably Seattle, right? Because I think everything they do with their new organization and their new franchise there is going to be compared to what's gone on in Vegas. And I think that's probably going to be unfair to them just because this is sort of the type of smash success that I think even the most optimistic people probably couldn't have envisioned. Yeah, you want to talk about unrealistic expectations. Uh, the GM of Seattle is not a job I want. I'm gonna. I, I feel bad for whoever gets that job. Hopefully, the people in charge are smart enough to see that that's not the the expectations. But man, after what Vegas has done, um, it's. I mean, obviously, you don't need to go to a Cup final, but they're going to expect a legit team right out of the gates. And if you're one of the bottom teams, there's going to be questions. And I don't think that's fair, um, especially with teams having this new expansion rules, having one under their belt. These GMs are not going to get <laughs> baited into these deals that they made with Vegas. They're probably going to be a lot more conservative, and it's going to make it tough on Seattle. Speaking of Seattle, um, if they don't hire Kelly McCrimmon, I will be shocked. Yeah, you think um, he's gone? Assistant GM here in Vegas. He's been phenomenal. Um, he he 
is basically George McPhee handles more of the pro scouting stuff where McCrimmon does most of the amateur scouting stuff. I mean, McPhee does part of the other stuff too, but that's really McCrimmon's realm. He's been obviously with the Brandon Wheat Kings. He's been coach, GM, owner, everything up there. Um, he has a lot of experience over in that West coast just because the Seattle Thunderbirds, um, he fits the mold perfectly. And he was right there step-by-step watching George McPhee do all of what he did to make Vegas what it is. So if I'm Seattle, he's, he's at the top of my list. I mean, they might have to act fast because it sounds like Edmonton might scoop him up before that, but yeah, no, he's going to be in hot demand. Yeah, definitely. And, and if in Edmonton too, I, I I think he's, he's a a future GM for sure. And I think he's going to be great. I'm going to hate it when he leaves because um, he's great to talk to, but (laughs) he deserves it. Yeah. Such is life. Um, All right, Jesse, let's, uh, let's get out of here. Plug some stuff. What, uh, what are you working on these days? What can people expect from you? Well, I am going to be working on a ton of trade deadline stuff coming up. Um, Like I said, I expect them to be pretty active. Um, If not, there's going to be a story that they didn't make a move. So either way, there's going to be a lot of trade deadline stuff. I'm working on a really cool story um, with Alex Tuck right now. I'm talking to a lot of his uh, childhood friends that should be coming out here in a few weeks. Um, Pretty crazy thing. He grew up in like rural Northern Buffalo on this street and he would play hockey and lacrosse and football and everything with all of his buddies well, there's like eight of them and they all eight of them ended up becoming professional athletes. It's like the craziest thing in all different sports. We got sled hockey players. We got skiers. We got lacrosse players. Obviously, Alex is in the NHL and his little brother is going to be you. So he's going to be in the NHL soon, assuming. Um, but yeah, really cool story um, about just a bunch of kids that ended up becoming pro athletes. That's my favorite thing to do at the athletic. Obviously, I'm pretty new. I'm only four or five months in at the athletic. But my, my favorite thing that they've allowed me to do is uh, kind of tell the stories behind the players, the human side of things. And that's that's always been my favorite type of journalism. Um, and, and I get to do some really cool stuff over there. Well, I've uh, really enjoyed your coverage of the team, man. You've uh, you've definitely added a nice little dynamic that I've it's made it more enjoyable to follow them, and um, I'm looking forward to seeing how the trade deadline unfolds and whether they are a buyer like we expect them to be, and sort of uh, looking forward to how the rest of this specific division shakes out and what that first round matchup is going to look like, and hopefully we can get you back on to uh, help dissect it and preview it when the time comes. Yeah, for sure, man. Can't wait. All right, have a good one. You too. Before we get out of here, I wanted to quickly touch on the recent trade we saw between the Bruins and the Wild that saw Charlie Coyle going to the Bruins and Ryan Donato going to the Wild. Um, I don't know how I feel about this trade, to be honest, because on the one hand, I think that Charlie Coyle, especially at this point of his career, has proven himself to be a more valuable NHL player than Ryan Donato. But at the same time, from the Bruins' perspective... It seems like a bit of a weird fit. I get that they're going after him to shore up their third-line center role and not necessarily put so much on the plate of a young player like Trent Frederick, but I think if you're looking at this Bruins team, what they need more so than anything is more secondary scoring, and for all the things Charlie Coyle brings to the table, I think he's not necessarily going to move the needle in a very tangible, noticeable fashion for them, at least in, in that regard. So I think they got the better player. I'm not sure they necessarily got better as a team or um, enough to justify giving up on a player like Ryan Donato. Uh, I think even when David Pasternak comes back, they're still going to need to do something, and I wouldn't be at all surprised to see them be in the market for your Marcus Johansson's, Matt Zuccarello's, Gustav Nyquist types to potentially give another second-line winger uh, for David Krejci to play with. Uh, For the Wild, 
I certainly think this is a better trade than the Nino Niederreiter Victor Rask swap, but uh, that's obviously not saying much because that was pretty much as bad as you can get. Uh, Donato's interesting because he's turning 23 years old, but at the same time, we've only seen him play under 50 NHL games and around 600 or so minutes at this level, so we don't necessarily know what he is at this point for a guy that's as old as he is. And I think at the worst case, he'll be a useful NHLer just because he does have that plus shot. And if you're using him in a sheltered scoring role and relying upon him on your power play, I think he can certainly add value there. But hopefully he can turn into a little bit more. I think the Bruins uh, have certainly given up on young players or have had a track record of doing so in the past before they should have. And I think it's quite plausible that Donato turns into a Frank Vetrano type who they gave up for a third or fourth round pick last year. And He's had a great year with Florida and has a similar skill set, and I could certainly see that happening. I think for the Minnesota Wild, uh, I know Charlie Quill carries some more name brand value, and he's under contract and all that, but I think this is a worthwhile bet for them to take because they're clearly not going anywhere this year, and at the very least, Donato has the potential to open the door to, to be something more down the road, whereas with Coyle, you watch him play and... He's one of those prototypical guys where if you catch him on the right night or catch him on the, on the, in the right week, you look at him and you go, this guy can do everything physically. He's one of the best players on the ice. He must be one of the better players in the league, right? And then you take a step back and you look at his overall numbers for the season and something doesn't add up there for whatever reason. And I think at this point, considering he's turning 27, he sort of is what he is. I think I've fallen victim to it certainly in the past, and I think a lot of us have you watch a guy like that and you bet on the talent and you expect that eventually he'll put it all together and hopefully become that player you want him to be based on how good he looked at on that one given night. But at this point, he sort of is what he is and I wouldn't expect much more from him. And that's a valuable third line player, but not someone that you're going to be making a point of going to watch or, or writing home about or or a guy who's really going to ultimately swing a playoff series for them. So I'd expect the Bruins to still be active and the Wild, um, whether it's potentially selling high on a guy like Michael Granlund or uh, shipping off Eric Stahl if he'll wave his no move, I think there's certain things for them that would make sense for them to do, even though they are currently in the wildcard race, just because that's a team that's trending downwards and isn't very good and certainly needs to do something to um, sort of increase their risk profile and potentially add some more variance to the equation to give them a higher ceiling because they are what they are at this point. Anyways, um, I just wanted to get that out of the way because I'm not sure when the next show is going to be. And I'm sure with all the trades that are be coming down between now and then, uh, this would be a trade that got lost in the shuffle a little bit. So I wanted to give a quick little bit of analysis on that. Uh, we're going to be certainly doing uh, a bunch of shows after the trade deadline, recapping it, taking stock of the new look league and uh, recalibrating our expectations and trying to figure out who won and who lost and how teams are shaping up for the postseason. So look forward to that. Uh, there's a bunch of fun news coming down the pike uh, with regards to the PDO cast that I can't wait to share with you guys. So look for that as well. And uh, in the meantime, I just want to remind everyone that they can help the show by going on iTunes and rating and review. Uh, give us five stars, leave a nice comment. All that stuff helps keep us up high on the charts and uh, keep us in the discussion. And the show is also available on Spotify now. So if iTunes is in your cup of tea or Google Play or what have you, um, feel free to go on, iTunes, on Spotify. And at the very least, even if that's not your preferred source for listening to podcasts, but you do have it, um, I'd appreciate you going and subscribing anyways, because that uh, goes a long way to helping support the show. So with that said, uh, we're going to get out of here. We're going to play the outro music, and we will be back 
sometime early next week after the traded line to take stock of everything that went down. Till then. The Hockey Pediocast with Dmitry Filipovich. Follow on Twitter at Dim Filipovich and on SoundCloud at soundcloud.com slash hockey pediocast.